Hello everybody and welcome to the podcast. But what's it all about? Well, I'll tell you. Every episode I'll be looking back on films that shaped my life growing up. It may be good, it may be bad, it may be the Super Mario Brothers movie. So sit back and enjoy as I rank some of my favourite movies of all time. This is the Black Magic Picture Show. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the Black Magic Picture Show here live on my Twitch channel on Twitch TV. Welcome. Uh, today, we're going to be covering quite possibly my favorite film of all time. However, before we do, we're going to go into a little bit of backstory. Uh, I'll tell you about myself, uh, what the podcast is going to be essentially about. Uh, so, my name's Black Magic. I am a. I'm going to say a connoisseur of films, uh, just out of view of the current camera. Just around me, there is two bookcases to my left-hand side. Uh, on them, at the minute, there is about 1,500 DVDs thereabouts. I am a really big film nut. I love films and have done for a long time. And I've been looking at making a podcast regarding films for, I'd say, probably maybe two or three years now. And I've just never got around to doing it. Uh, things have got in the way, or other ideas have come up. Uh, things have changed. And it's just something I've always wanted to do, but never done. Um, I've done podcasts in the past. Uh, myself and Chris Raven, we did High Spots and Chair Shots. That was a wrestling podcast. That went on for quite a number of episodes until, I believe, the last ones we did was January. Uh, we've not done anything since then, just because of lockdown and... Things have changed in the wrestling community, um, it's, so it's something that we've, we've put on the back burner a little bit. I used to do my own wrestling podcast called Pulling Hairs and Swinging Chairs. Um, and we've, we've done a couple of little bits in the past. Uh, we've done hosting. I used to be a radio DJ. I did an internet radio when I was in college uh, called Black Magic Radio, hence where the name Black Magic came from. And I've decided that finally, it's been a few years, I love films, I want to do a film podcast. So, here it is. It's the Black Magic Picture Show. And, as I said, I wanted to start with the, the film that, essentially, I remember as the first film ever watching. I could have watched something different, but this film has stuck with me since... I was probably, I can remember, maybe five. Uh, my grandma used to own a caravan in Skegness, if anybody's from the UK. Um, and what had happened is we used to go down most weekends uh we go down as kids uh there was myself my brother my brother would have been a baby at the time we'd get there and it'd be a case of unload the car get everything into the caravan and i would always ask them to bring the tv out set the tv up and put back to the future in because i wanted to watch back to the future and that went on for numerous years and over the years which i will get into as the podcast goes later on um i've had the fortune of meeting some of the cast 
Uh, if anybody is currently on Twitch TV, you will see just to the um, the other side of me. Yep, the left-hand side on the Twitch stream. Um, there is a cycling thing of photos. I've had some pleasure of actually meeting a few of the Batch of Future cast. I missed Michael J. Fox, sadly. And that's one thing I've regretted since the day I went. Uh, but fingers crossed, it's the 35th anniversary coming up soon. Michael J. Fox might be back. Um, but yeah, we're covering Back to the Future Part 1. It is one film, like I said, that I just remember watching as a kid. The other being one that's coming later on, which is Bill and Ted. And it's just one of them films that I can rewatch whenever. It could be on TV, it could have it on DVD. If I've, if I've just got spare time and I want to watch something, if I can't be specific, Back to the Future is always the go-to. Because it is that good. The there's, there's just something about the film. The writing on it was absolutely amazing. Um, and yeah, it's just a film that I can go back to over and over again. Uh, so we'll jump into it. And just quickly running through a few things of the film if nobody's seen it, which I don't think I've ever met anybody that has not seen Back to the Future Part 1. Um, so it was written by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, directed by Robert Zemeckis. It starred Christopher Lloyd as Dr. Emmett Brown, Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly, Leah Thompson as Lorraine Baines McFly, Crispin Glover as George McFly, and Thomas F. Wilson as Biff Tannen. Uh, released July the 3rd, 1985. Um, it was made on a $19 million budget, and it pulled $391.5 million, which, when we get in a little bit later into the podcast... Um, there were stories about when it was making it, uh, which I will show you a book that I own, uh, which is a visual guide behind Back to the Future. Uh, and it's amazing because it gives you all the backstory behind everything that needed to be. There was things that got changed, um, which I'll get into in a second, that it affected the film and it added extra onto the budget because it meant more work. But uh, as somebody hypno in the uh, Twitch chat has just said, um, 90 million for 391.5 back is an amazing investment. Uh, I think I need to get on something like that. Um, so the film itself, uh, these multiple documentaries and things out there. There was there was a series on Netflix on about it for a while. Um, but one of the main things that stuck with me is the the writer of it, Bob Gale. Uh, the reason he came up with the idea was he went home. Um, I think one of his parents were ill, if I remember right. Uh, went back to his childhood house and he was clearing things out, just sorting through a load of stuff that were there. And he came across his dad's yearbook. And as he was flicking through, he noticed that his dad was um, the president of, like the class president of a few different things. Like I think he was part of the chess club. Um there was a few more. I can't remember the terms for them because we don't have them over in the UK. And Bob Gale wondered um, what it would be like if he'd actually gone to school with his dad and would he have been friends with his dad in school? Uh, and it's an interesting thing to think. Um, I lost my dad when I was 16 and I've often thought, like, not as much what would it have been like if I went to school with my dad, more what what would it have been like now? in that over, basically, he's passed more than half of my life ago. Uh, I'm currently 33 now. Um, 
and just what maybe what would have happened differently in the time frame between then and now and it's a uh, it's one of them where you can't really guess anything but as i say if it was in school because another love of mine bar films is music i think if i'd have known my dad in school i probably would have been friends with him because my dad was a dj uh, and that's where i got the music element from um i can't tell you how many times that i came in and he used to edit wedding videos as well of all things and I used to come into the room and there'd be a wedding video that's being cut together and he'd have like Pet Shop Boys or some random band on in the background, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, something along them lines. And just music was something big in my house. And yeah, just just thinking about it, looking back, it probably would have been a thing that I maybe might have been friends with him in school. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting thought on that one. Um. So, just to run through a few other bits regarding the film. So, Marty McFly, um, obviously played by the great Michael J. Fox, wasn't actually the first actor cast as Michael J. Fox. This is where we was just on about the budget side of things. Uh, the original guy was actually a actor called Eric Stoltz, who, if you've seen Pulp Fiction, is the guy that administers the epinephrine to Uma Thurman when she has the overdose. Um, he was actually Michael J. Fox... Um, well, he was Mike McFly for about four weeks, and they filmed about fifty percent of the film. And there you go, hypno nose, get the shot. Uh, that's Eric Stoltz. He was Marty McFly. These images, there's not much footage of him. There's two silent clips that's been released in thirty-five years, uh, but he was originally Marty McFly, um, and they, they filmed half of the film with him, and they realised that he wasn't quite fit in the idea of what they wanted for Mike McFly um, Eric Stoltz was he was very method actor and he was playing it a little bit too serious instead of the comedy element of it which we all know and love now he was playing it more serious and rumours are backstage which I heard this story a couple of weeks back and it made me laugh um, he used to stay in character he was like Daniel Day-Lewis he'd stay in character and he'd get everybody to call him Marty all the time and the day that they phoned him and sacked him, they pulled all of the rest of the cast and went, right, unfortunately, we've had to let Eric go. Uh, we're bringing Marty McFly in. Uh, sorry, we're bringing Michael J. Fox in. Um, we will be restarting and reshooting everything from tomorrow. And Christopher Lloyd were like, who's Eric? Because he thought that Eric Stoltz's real name was Marty because they called him Marty all the time. Uh, but, yeah, they had to scrap Eric Stoltz. Unfortunately, it wasn't working how they wanted uh, the role of Mike McFly, there was actually a few other people, and there were some big names up for Marty as well. Uh, people like C. Thomas Howell, Ben Stiller, uh, John Cryer from Two and a Half Men, uh, John Cusack, and apparently even Johnny Depp went for the role. Um, none of them got it. As I say, Eric Stoltz took it originally, and then Michael J. Fox came in, replacing him after a few weeks, and the rest is history. Uh, but the writers said that Michael J. Fox was always the original person that they wanted. Uh, the problem was that Michael J. Fox was on Family Ties at the time, and they didn't want to let him out of the contract because it was one of the biggest things going on, t on, on telly. There you go, Hypno, first reference, on telly. Um, and they just couldn't let him out of his contract. They needed him. He was one of the main characters. Uh, so they went with Eric Stoltz, and it didn't work out, and they re the producers and went, look, we need Michael can 
we sort something out with you. And eventually they agreed the contract and it was a case of he'd do family ties during the day, finish, get a car or a plane, depending on where they filmed, get over to the Universal lot and start filming Back to the Future till the early hours of the morning. And he running on four or five hours sleep a night. Uh, so the guy's a machine. Um, if anybody knows Michael J. Fox now, unfortunately, he does have Parkinson's. However, look on YouTube. There is a video of him playing guitar quite recently with Coldplay. Um, he plays Johnny Be Good. Uh, the man is a machine, lovely fella. My friend met him at the Comic-Con where the cycling photos were. Unfortunately, I didn't get the chance. Um, but, yeah, she says he's a really nice guy and still full of life, which is nice to hear. Um, but with the Eric Stoltz side of things, they replaced everything. However, there is two shots in the film that do still have Eric Stoltz in them. Uh, the first one is when Biff gets punched in the canteen after Marty trips him up. If you freeze frame it as the punch is thrown, it's Eric Stoltz's face. And then the other one, when Marty dives into the DeLorean when the Libyans have just shot Doc and they're chasing him, uh, that's also Eric Stoltz as well. Or rumours are it's Eric Stoltz. Uh, but yeah, everything got changed. Um, on the side of Doc Brown, Christopher Lloyd, who's known at the time for doing Taxi. Um, since then, he's been in films such as The Addams Family, uh, Suburban Commando. I can't think what else, but he's been in quite a lot, Chris Lloyd. Uh, he, again, wasn't the original casting. Uh, he was looking at two... Well, he was looking at one person mainly, but somebody else did apply. Um, he was looking at John Lithgow to be playing Doc from the start. Uh, John Lithgow would have been interesting. He went on to do things like Third Rock from the Sun. Um, that would have been quite interesting because they had the, the comedy aspect there because John Lithgow is a really good comedy actor. Um, it can do the series if anybody's ever watched Dexter. He plays the Trinity Killer, if I remember right. Um, really creepy. Um, but yeah, John Lithgow went for the role of Doc. And also Jeff Goldblum, which was a little bit of a shock because, I'm not going to lie, I can't see Jeff Goldblum at the time in his early 30s playing Doc Brown, really. Uh, but I suppose it would have been interesting if that had been the case. Uh, but yeah, role eventually went to Chris Lloyd. Uh, who took the idea of Einstein. Um, and, yeah, going to the Twitch chat, uh, Groupie seems too young at the time. I believe he was about 34, 35 uh, when he applied, because this was made about 1984, 1985 time. Um, so, yeah, he'd have been quite young, and I can't see the dynamic of working as well. Uh I think they've nailed the dynamics of Doc and Marty with Chris Lloyd and Michael J. Fox. Uh, but yeah, uh, Jeff Goldblum went for it. The same with Tom Wilson's side of things. Um, originally, they wanted one of Biff's gang. It's a guy called J.J. Cohen. He was meant to have been Biff. He applied for it, and he was in the front running. However, when they cast Eric Stoltz, they realised that he was a little bit too small and wouldn't be intimidating to Stoltz. Uh, so that's when they went and looked for other people, and Thomas F. Wilson got the job. Um, and then when they recast with Michael J. Fox, if he'd have been in it from the start, uh, probably Tom Wilson would have never been in, because J.J. Cohen was taller and bigger than uh, Michael J. Fox, and it would have pulled the role off. But with who got cast, that's how it rolled. And everything's good. 
hello to Matty Joe, who's just popped in, Timmy Mallet. This is actually my lovely summery shirt. Um, it's very floral. Absolutely love the thing. Um, but yeah, when the writing went on, um, it was actually declined 40-41 times. Uh, they took it to multiple studios and like places like Columbia and Disney. Uh, Disney actually said no to it due to the incest side of things, which we'll cover later on in the podcast. Um, and they were at a loose end. Uh, they believed that it was a good script, but they just couldn't find anybody that was interested in it. They shopped it around and around. Nobody really cared. Uh, so Robert Zemeckis went to Steven Spielberg. However, Zemeckis's couple of films previous to Back to the Future had not been very good. Um, there'd been a few flops, and he thought, right, if I go to Spielberg and go, I've got this script, I want to make it, and something went wrong, he would essentially never be working again. He'd just be blacklisted. He's made multiple things under Spielberg's name. Spielberg wouldn't work with him anymore. Nobody else wanted the films, and it would have been scrapped off. So instead of going for Back to the Future, he actually made a film, and I don't know if anybody's seen it, called Romance in the Stone. Um, I vaguely remember watching it a long time ago, but I can't remember much of it. Uh, luckily, ended up being a hit, and went back to Spielberg and went, right, Romance in the Stone's done well. Would you want to produce Back to the Future? And Spielberg said, yes, I'll do it. And there's history. Uh, back to the Future, got a producer, well, executive producer, stuck it under Amblin Entertainment, who was Spielberg's production company, and eventually got made. Uh, but following on with the Steven Spielberg side of things, he he agreed to be executive producer. However, the guy who created the soundtrack, which at the beginning you heard the overture for Back to the Future, which is synonymous on great music themes, um, Alan Silvestri was brought in to write the soundtrack. However, Spielberg wasn't a fan of Silvestri's work. Um, so... Robert Zemeckis went to him and right, look, we've got a problem. Spielberg isn't keen on what you're doing. We need to make this film as big as we possibly can. We just don't have the budget. We've This is, was after all the recast and everything. They've spent money having to reshoot the film because they've got Eric Stoltz. They've brought Michael J. Fox in. Uh, we need to make this film sound as big and epic as we can on as little as possible. And I'll replay the overture again because you can just sense the grandioseness of a film like this with just the theme. And this is one of the first things you hear, um, especially in Back to the Future 2, this is what it opens with. So instantly that sets you off on this film is going to be bigger than what they've got the budget for. Now, the film's, like we said, right at the beginning. The film's gone on to gross millions. Um, it's in the, I believe it's the Library of Congress for films that they preserve because it's that important to uh, media culture. Um, and yeah, Alan Silvestri, one of the best jobs, I think, I have this somewhere, I don't know where it's gone, I've got the soundtrack somewhere on vinyl, and it's one of the best 
soundtracks to a film just for not just instrumental music, but things like Huey Lewis and the News uh, with The Power of Love, and then at the end of the credits, you've got Back in Time. Um, Earth Angels in there, Johnny B. Goods in there. Uh, you've got, apparently there was, I can't remember if it's this one or the second one, there was a Lindsay Buckingham song from Fleetwood Mac. Uh, that did get scrapped because apparently it's absolute garbage. Uh, but aside from that, everything else fits the film and the era perfectly for what they was aiming for. Um, and we'll we'll cover the music a little bit later on when we get down into further on in the podcast. Um, just speaking of Huey Lewis, um, he actually took the job because they offered him Ghostbusters originally, uh, and he was. He was torn between this and Back to the Future. It was Ghostbusters Back to the Future. But what Ghostbusters had done is Louis Lewis have got a song called I Want a New Drug. They'd used that as a placeholder in the film for where they wanted the Ghostbusters theme, which they didn't know what it was at the time. So they offered it to Huey Lewis, and Huey Lewis was a bit um and ah and said, I'm going to go work on Back to the Future. They offered it me first. Uh, we'll see how this pans out. So Huey Lewis goes over to Amblin, deals with them. Uh, the Ghostbusters producers bring in Ray Parker Jr., who makes the Ghostbusters theme that everybody knows, which, if you listen to, is eerily similar to I Want a New Drug, uh, because that's what he was listening to at the time. They showed him the film that they got filmed up to that point with the music in it as a placeholder and went, right, that's what you're dealing with, right as a theme song. And he ended up going to court over it because Huey Lewis was like, no, I'm not having this. This is a one a new drug. You've just altered it slightly and stuck new lyrics on it. Uh, it ended up where he, uh, Ray Parker Jr. had to pay quite a lot of money. It's never been announced how much money, uh, but he had to pay a little bit. And he, there was a non-disclosure agreement in it, which got broke a few years ago. And there was a whole new court case, but... The, the exact amounts have never been officially announced, but more than likely it'll probably end up being millions. Uh, so, yeah, um, when we get into the film, uh, the, the, the plot becomes apparent with the vehicle and everything. However, I read a couple of days ago, because there's the 35th anniversary coming out of the film, and they've done all new int uh, all new interviews, and they've also dug out old audition tapes for characters that were never in the. I've never seen any of these before, as far as I were aware. This were the cast. Never heard of anything that anybody else had applied. Um, and they interviewed John Cryer, who went for the role of Marty, and he's confirmed that originally, the DeLorean was never part of the film the original time machine was a fridge which ended up years years later being used for indiana jones uh, but apparently the whole end of the film with marty and trying to get back to the future it ended up where they had to go to a nuclear testing site and they needed nuclear fission from an atomic bomb and a secret ingredient to work to basically power the time machine which was a fridge to get back to the time uh, and the ingredient was coca-cola uh, so the final scene was Marty's about to travel back and he realises that there's not enough Coca-Cola in the machine to react with the nuclear explosion. 
So he ends up having to go all around the little buildings. Like if you've ever played uh, Call of Duty and you played Nuketown, it was apparently going to be a, a little bit like that. It was just little houses with dummies inside where they test nuclear explosions. Uh, so Marty's running around trying to find Coca-Cola, finally finds it, pours it into the machine, doesn't have time to activate the time travel because he, I'm not 100% what it was. They've never really explained it fully, but it was something to do with the fridge travels and he realised that he needed a little bit longer and if he'd have stayed outside, obviously, there's an atomic bomb that's just been dropped, he would die. So he got inside the fridge and that was lead lined so it actually saved him from the explosion uh the reaction happens with the uh nuclear fission and the coca-cola travels back to 1985 they dropped that because they didn't want kids climbing into fridge freezers uh which is understandable um so they went right we need to change something what can we do um and that's where the the car come in um, mainly because there is a joke, which I'll cover later on, uh, where Marty crashes into the barn and the Peabody family come in and the little kid's holding a comic. And on the comic, uh, the front of the comic, it says Spaceman from Pluto and there's a picture of an alien in what looks like a yellow hazmat suit with a flying spaceship that looks like the DeLorean. And the running joke was, well, the DeLorean looks a bit like a spaceship with the gullwing doors. Why not? use this as the time machine and they did i don't know why because apparently deloreans are a piece of shit they're notoriously unreliable with the electrics uh there's these multiple documentaries you can see from the guys from ranging from filming it to people that have owned it that have said these things aren't great um but it made john delorean a quite significant amount of money with the deal from it uh, and rumours are he's still got the original check for the rights still framed, never cashed it uh, he just gets residual rights based on the film um, so yeah, the original title of Back to the Future was actually going to be just referring to that comic Spaceman from Pluto uh, they sent, they got a letter from somebody from head up of the studio that said they don't think a film with the title, with the word future in the title was going to make any money uh, so call it Spaceman from Pluto. And Robert Zemeckis sent him a message back and saying, oh, we found we found your letter so funny. Uh, thank you for making the joke. Uh, we're going to carry on. And the guy was too proud to tell them that he wasn't joking, that he just let them carry on using the name Back to the Future. Which I don't believe Spaceman from Pluto is that good of a name. So they probably fell quite well there. Uh, he also wanted to change... A bit on Doc. There was a few character name changes. Um, he wanted to call Lorraine Meg, and he agreed to call her Lorraine because it was named after one of the producer's wives. Uh, Doc was going to be a professor instead of Dr. Brown, and also they were going to change Einstein the dog into a chimp called Shemp. So Robert Zemeckis probably made the right choices in where he went, I want creative control. Stuck with, stuck to his guns, stuck to the script. Bits, little bits have changed, like the ending, uh, but stuck with it. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the syn uh, synopsis of the film, and then we're going to jump into it. And I've pulled out a few key scenes that I think uh, from the film that 
like stood out a little bit to me in in terms of whether it were things like foreshadowing the later parts of the film, if it was a significant scene. And we're just going to try and break down the film a little bit. Uh, the first episode is probably only going to go maybe an hour, an hour and a half tops. Um, and then eventually I'm going to get guests on and things we can dissect it a little bit more. But basically the synopsis of Back to the Future then. Uh, so in, in this 1980s sci-fi classic, small town California teen Marty McFly is thrown back into the 50s when an experiment by his eccentric, eccentric scientist friend, Doc Brown, goes awry. Travelling through time in a modified DeLorean, Marty encounters young versions of his parents and must make sure that they fall in love or he'll cease to exist. Even more dauntingly, Marty has allowed to return to uh, sorry, Marty has to return to his own time and save the life of Doc Brown. I'm gonna start doing a new thing because that does explain the film, but it's a little bit longer. So I'm going to go, and if anybody's in chat, you can try and make up your own on these. Um, an alternate synopsis to explain the film in under five words. Mine is, don't sleep with your mother. Uh, so if anybody wants to come up with any in chat, alternate synopsis, under five words, uh, best one might win a prize. So if anybody's around, go for it. Okay, so let's jump into the film. So that film, that scene gets me every time. That essentially almost foreshadows the dance scene at the end, well, near the end of the film. Um, first off, the guy who's like, sorry, you're just too darn loud, is Huey Lewis from Huey Lewis in the News. Uh, and also the song that the Pinheads are playing is uh, The Power of Love, uh, just a heavier version of it. Um, so yeah, I believe this scene... Basically, the guy's telling him, I'm sorry, you're too loud, you're never going to get anywhere. Marty goes into a little bit of depression bit after this. Um, but this cuts to, on the Johnny Be Good scene near the end of the film, um, where Marty starts playing normally and then decides to throw in some of his guitar heroes, so like Eddie Van Halen, Pete Townsend, Angus Young, and just goes for it on the solo. Uh, and... Everybody stood there. You've got Principal Strickland with his hands over his ears, basically foreshadowing back to this, that, I'm sorry, it's too darn loud. And then we get the immortal line, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. And they did. I I think this was, because I'm heavily into my rock music, I think this film was part of the start of me listening to that side of things, in that you've got, Chuck Berry with Johnny Be Good. You got Huey Lewis, Huey, uh, I can't even say his name, Huey Lewis and the News with things like The Power of Love and um, Back in Time. In Back to the Future 3, you've got ZZ Top at the festival and then at the end they've got Double Back on the soundtrack. They had a very rocky music on there 
Uh, and then you go on to another film, which I'll be doing a late, uh, like in later episodes, Bill and Ted. Uh, Extremes on one of them. Um, I think it's the first one where they're all cleaning, if I remember rightly. Um, and my music t- tastes have changed. I, I did listen to pop and stuff up until I was about 13, 14, and then I started listening to the heavier stuff. But I always remember, as a kid, wanting to play guitar to Johnny Be Good because... Michael J. Fox did it. Marty McFly was this all-singing-all-dancing hero for me as a child. Uh, So, yeah, the music on this film, I've said before, is amazing. And that scene foreshadows what's going to happen later on. Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! Mayor Wilson is sponsoring an initiative to replace that clock. 30 years ago, lightning struck that clock tower, and the clock hasn't run since. So, again, another bit of foreshadowing at the beginning. Um, now, the courtyard square, uh, the courthouse square set that you use, I tried making a list of everything that I've seen that square in, and I think I've lost count. Uh, I know for a fact it was in Ghost Whisperer. Uh, I know it was Kingston Falls in Gremlins. It's been in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was in To Kill a Mockingbird. It was in the video, Why Don't You Get a Job by The Offspring. I think it might have possibly been in Desperate Housewives, maybe. Uh, but it's a. it was a set that's built on the back of the Hollywood backlot, uh, Universal. Um, and there's a couple of documentaries on... Let me just dig the DVD... This was the twenty, uh, sorry, the thirtieth anniversary edition of Back to the Future. Uh, got it imported from America. Unfortunately, the lights not great on it, and the flux capacitor actually lights up on the front. It's got a little button that lights it up. Uh, there's multiple documentaries on there, and it shows you him actually making the town. And the idea was that the fifty side of things is going to be all prim and proper and everything's going to be nice, all the stores are going to be all painted up, people are looking after the shops, and as the series progresses, and they, like they're in the 80s, everything gets dark and dingy, because everything's moved out of the town squares, they've all gone to shopping centres, malls, and them type of places, and nobody's going to a town anymore, and with the coronavirus, this kind of rings true now, I have to walk through where I live to be able to get down to our practice room uh, for the band with Matty Joe. And before lockdown, okay, there was always a couple of shops that wasn't open or they was changing it over. They've been doing a lot of building work down there and changing a lot of things over because they're doing it all up. But from March, when we, that was the last time I went down that way, cutting now to we are in august and i went down there last week i'd say maybe 40 percent of the shops are shut and not in terms of shut i'm sorry we're closed we'll be back open once the coronavirus is done i mean i'm sorry we can't we're not taking money we cannot afford to open the shop anymore so we're getting rid of it uh, and the amount of shops that are boarded up still uh even there's a couple of like the small supermarket chains like there's a sainsbury's near where i go to work they're still boarded up. Uh, people, okay, most of them are what we call spice heads um, over here, but 
people down on the look just sat in doorways and in sleeping bags in doorways and I remember Sheffield well I'm, I'm from a place called Sheffield I might as well say I remember going as a kid and it being quite nice and just in the last maybe a little bit longer than coronavirus uh, especially with the spice head size of things that's been a year or two but just in the last year the the way that the town centre looks from then compared to how it is now and then going back to when I was a kid compared to what it is now is night and day the town has just gone it's gone to pot and that's what the producers wanted to do with Hill Valley they, they looked at it and went right people have moved out of the cities they're going to malls which are on the outskirts of the towns we need to have closed businesses down there's going to be buildings boarded up uh, the, the theatre in there for example the theatre turns into a porno theatre and there's signs on the board that says um, something like American Orgy 24 hours a day or something along them lines and what they did is they built the town all nice filmed all the 50s stuff and then just made it look horrible and stuck boards up everywhere and put paint jobs where it ate through the paint and turned like in the 50s there's a park in front of the courthouse they turn it into a car park it's concreted over uh, and it's it is literally just the back lot which apparently it has burnt down three times luckily the courthouse side of things has not really been affected and they have just built them all back up um but the way they made it go from being this like i'm from the uk so we don't see a lot of like american sitcom like old sitcoms where it were like the guy the, the dad that goes to work and then there's the housewife and they've got this like idyllic house and the white picket fence and everybody's like dressed immaculately and the hair's never out of place and perfect makeup that's what they was aiming for for the 50s and then when they hit the 80s they just went right we need to make it look disgusting and they pulled they did it really well uh, they managed to grunge it up and make it look like it was dilapidated <coughs> yeah apologies for that uh, so yeah they made it look absolutely disgusting and they did a really good job on it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Yes. The Doc took, as we've said, a time machine and turned the DeLorean into it. Now, I've got a lot of things to my right-hand side uh, based on Back to the Future because, as I said at the start, it is my all-time favourite film. If nobody's seen one, that is a DeLorean. Uh, the reason for using the DeLorean instead of the fridge is the gullwing doors. It looks like a spaceship. Um, so, yeah, I've got... This is a few years back, my other half. She got me the triple pack, so I've got the normal DeLorean. I've got... The Back to the Future 2 DeLorean with Mr. Fusion and everything on the back. And then I've got the Back to the Future 3 DeLorean with all the modded works on the front of it that Doc puts on to be able to get back to the Wild West. Um, but yeah, they decided that they couldn't use a fridge 
kids would try and climb in the fridges and maybe try and replicate what they've seen in the films and get stuck in there. So they went, right, we need to do something that's going to look like a spaceship. What can we do? And I believe John DeLorean was in bankruptcy at the time, or he was close to bankruptcy, and just decided that that car fitted what they needed perfect and basically turned that into the time machine. Uh, now, if you look on, if anybody is currently on Twitch, you'll see the cycling of the photos when I met a lot of the Back to the Future cast. Uh, I've met Chris Lloyd, in he was in the DeLorean, and I've also managed to get a photo sat in the DeLorean. Now, I've said for a long time, I want to own a DeLorean. And then I got in one of the things, and I don't want to own a DeLorean anymore. They are the most uncomfy car you will ever sit in. You've got to essentially do a workout to try and climb out of the thing. The electrics are notorious for just failing all the time. Uh, and they're not very good mileage to the gallon, apparently. So if I ever bought a DeLorean, it would sit in a garage or on the drive, never move, and it would just be a show-off piece like, look, I've got a DeLorean. Uh, which I did see one a long time ago now. Um, probably 10 years ago. Uh, somebody was selling one on eBay. And yeah, <laughs> uh, going to the Twitch start, like groupie says, they only go up to like 55 mile an hour. Which, if you wanted to travel back into the past, ain't going to happen. Uh, quick side note on the numbers. Uh, the reason for the 88 miles an hour to be able to travel into the past. Uh, people have done calculations like it's based on the speed to get through a wormhole and the time it opens and these proper mathematical equations to things that it essentially is from a movie. Uh, the producers confirmed the reason for 88 mile an hour is it looked cool on the little light-up dash number thing that they got. Uh, it was the best number that they got on there that looked quite good, so they stuck with it. <laughs> There's no like science behind it or anything. It's like, yeah, it looks quite cool. That'll do. Uh, so, yeah, they decide to go with the time machine. Um, so it makes everything portable then in that if it was a fridge, you you watch the film and Marty ends up at Twin Pine Mall, um, basically crashes into a barn and then has got to get to Hill Valley and he's not at Hill Valley, so he's got to drive there. If it was a fridge, how did Marty drag a fridge to Hill Valley? It, it would have made no sense. So Robert Zemeckis went, well, why don't we make something portable in that it can drive? Because if you're making a time machine, wouldn't it be smart to be able to drive around in it? Um, and that's why they went with the DeLorean. And then it also set up, and I think it's one of the smartest, the smartest jokes that they use that not a lot of people catch, in that when Marty meets Doc at the mall, or, the, well, the mall car park, and they're going through the DeLorean and Marty's filming everything, he's telling what it does. Uh, there's a... It's, it's more of a throwaway joke in that Marty... Uh, Doc turns to Marty and says, I remember when this was all pine tree... Uh, when this was all fields, and old man Peabody had a thing about breeding pine trees. Hence, Twin Pines Mall. When Marty goes back into the past and escapes from the barn in the DeLorean, he drives away because he's getting shot at by Peabody with a shotgun and crashes through a tree, and Peabody shouts, you space bastard, you've killed the pine. Cut to Marty at the end of the film coming back to the car park, right at the very end, the sign has changed to Lone Pine Mall, because Marty 
destroyed one of the trees. And it's it's something that they put in there that not many people notice. Uh, but Twin Pine Mall becomes Lone Pine Mall because Marty runs over one of the trees and kills it. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a few things that go like run through the film. Um, I've got a couple of goofs that they have put in there, um, which one of these is at the minute. Um, when Marty gets to the car park, the back of the truck drops open and the DeLorean reverses out of the truck and Doc climbs out. And that's your introduction to Doc Bar on the telephone at the beginning. However, if you look at the truck and the DeLorean as it's reversing out, the DeLorean is almost touching the sides. With the gullwing doors, the gullwing doors obviously come out and up. How did Doc get into the car, then get the car into the truck and still be inside it? The only way he could have done it, uh, and then put the, the back of the truck door up as well, um, the only way he could have done it is if he literally remote-controlled everything, which would have just made no sense. Uh, so that's one that people argue about all the time. Nobody's sure why or how Doc got in the car and then got in the truck in the first place. Uh, but just sticking with Doc and Marty, um, there's always been debates on how did Doc and Marty become friends. Uh, because it is a bit weird, Marty's meant to be 17, 18. Doc, it's anybody's guess, but he's like, he's maybe in his 40s, maybe, maybe late 30s, uh, when they are in 1955. So it's how does a teenager essentially become friends with an old man? Um, there's two different things on this one. There's the official reasoning what Bob Gale, who wrote the film, said. And then there's what I think. Uh, so the Bob Gale side of things basically said, uh, for years, Marty were told that Doc's this crackpot. Uh, he's a mad scientist. Uh, stay away from him, which Strickland says as well. He's like, um, you're still hanging around with Doc Brown. Uh, so Marty sneak, uh, apparently snuck into Doc's lab, and he were fascinated by all the cool stuff there. Uh, when Doc found him, it was he thought it was cool that Marty thought Doc was cool and he accepted him for what he was uh, and they just became friends and then obviously like he was one there that if Doc's experimenting doing stuff he can feed Einstein and generally look after stuff that's the official reasoning for me just going off the start of the film you look at the family scene when the McFlyers are sat around the table and George is essentially the henpecked husband. Uh, Lorraine's the alcoholic. George, to me, is constantly working. Uh, he's got Biff as a boss. He's having to do all Biff's work. He's working late at office. Uh, he's not getting much time off. He, When he doesn't see it, he's that despondent in a way that he just watches telly if he's, uh, while he's working as well. You see it in that scene. Um, and Marty doesn't feel like he's got that father figure in his life, whereas when Doc comes along, Doc feels a little bit like that father figure that Marty's never had, because I can't see George being one of them guys that when Marty's a kid, he's taking him out, and again, it's an American thing, we don't do this over here, but like playing baseball with him, or he's taking him to Little League, and them type of things. I think that George was, he was stuck in his job 
Biff was forcing him to do all his work, hence why Biff's got to the supervisor. Uh, and he never had time with his kids. So Marty heard this thing about a crackpot. Part of the story that he says there, he maybe snuck into his lab to find out what was going on. But as time's progressed, Marty sees Doc as sort of father figure because Doc accepts Marty for who he is and wants him to be involved in what he's doing. Hence why he phones him and goes, can you get to the Twin Pads Mall at like 1 o'clock in the morning? Marty's like, yeah, that's fine. Why not? Um, so, yeah. <coughs> okay, on to the next clip. Sleep for almost nine hours now. Horrible nightmare. Dreams that I went back in time. It was terrible. Well, safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. 1955? Okay, so here we get the introduction of Lorraine's character as young Lorraine. Uh, we see her right at the beginning of the film, and she's the alcoholic mother that her brother's in prison, and she's just drink. She's essentially drinking her life away. Which, as the fifty story progresses, you kind of figure out why if Marty hadn't come in and changed the timeline. Uh, in that, she eventually got with George. Um, the one bit that has never been explained is how... Oh, sorry, it does get explained. I apologise. <coughs> so, in the original, uh, George is the peeping Tom. Um, it's spying on Lorraine through the window, falls out the tree, gets hit by the car, uh, and that scene that you just had the sound clip for isn't Marty, it's George in the unaltered timeline. That then changes uh, because... Marty's trying to find George to speak to him, uh, realises, pushes him out of the road, Marty gets hit by the car instead, uh, then gives the running joke of his name's Calvin Klein, because he's got the Calvin Klein underpants on. Um, and yeah, this is where Lorraine originally gets originally gets debuted, but you don't realise, because at the beginning she's always like, you don't park a car with a boy, you don't talk to a boy. Um one bit that I never really got from the Lorraine again, it's more when they sat in the car later on to original. Um, she starts drinking, and Marty obviously realises originally she was an alcoholic, so he snatches it off her, and she's like, geez, you smoke too. But I'm sure in the first scene where she's the alcoholic, you see an ashtray in the back, and it's full of cigarette butts. Uh, but I'm not sure. Don't quote me on it. I'm not 100%. Um, so yeah, Lorraine is introduced as essentially the girl next door. Uh, it really, like she's got a crush on Marty, who she thinks is called Calvin. Uh, things start getting a little bit weird from this point, uh, which we'll we'll jump into a little bit later on um, on that side of things because we've got a a clip that I'm going to use uh, that that's the creepy point. But yeah. That is uh, essentially Lorraine's debut into the film. Doc, I'm from the future. 
I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now, I need your help to get back to the year 1985. Okay, so this is a pivotal point of the film in that Marty's gone back to 1955. He's finally tracked down Doc. Uh, Doc has the house. He's got the garage next door, which at the start of the film, he only has the garage. Uh, the house next door has been sold off as land. Uh, so he goes to Doc and Doc's trying to read his mind with a machine, uh, sticks the sticky thing on his head, and he, he thinks it can read his thoughts. I always laugh every time um, I hear the bit where he pulls the sucker pad off, and it just goes <laughs> off his head. Uh, always makes me laugh every time I'm on. Um, but, yeah, this is the point where Doc's path changes, in that he's been doing these experiments for years, and the experiments have never worked. He's tried this mind-reading. Uh, he had it on the dog at one point, and he's trying to mind-read the dog, and nothing's working. Um, and this guy comes along, and he's like, look, I'm from the future. You've got me here. I need your help getting back. And Doc's like, yeah, all right, whatever. Uh, knowing in the back of his mind, nothing I've invented works. They go out to the garage, uh, and at this point, the doc's got the, pla uh, the plaster on his head. And Marty goes, uh, I know the story, the bruise on your head. Uh, you hang in a clock, you slipped uh, off the edge of the toilet, you hit your head on the sink, and that's where you have the idea for the flux capacitor. And Doc's never told anybody about the flux capacitor. Nobody knows about that. So at that point, something's like, well, hang on a minute, What's how does this guy know? And then he, Marty takes Doc to the DeLorean that has stopped working. He hidden it behind the Leon Estate sign, uh, turns the car on, which, again, it's amazing how the lights in the car can turn on, but the car itself can't turn on, and shows him the flux capacitor, and Doc holds up the picture of it, and it looks exactly the same. He's like, I finally invented something that works. <coughs> he spent so much... Like, it says in there, he spent so much money trying to invent things that he's... He, he essentially sells his house. Like, there's a... Oh, sorry, I, I tell a lie. He doesn't sell his house. There's an insurance claim on his house because apparently the house burns down and there was an insurance claim against it. Um, fan fiction says that the fire was intentional. Doc had started it because he needed the money, moved into the garage, and just burnt the house down to claim on the insurance. Uh, but, yeah, exactly, Hypno. He believed in the dream. Uh, Doc had got that, and he thought, I know I can do this. However, I need the money for this. Uh, so he, he burnt the place down, or an explosion, whatever it was, and went, right, I know I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to have to live in a garage, but I know this dream can work. I'm not really covering Back to the Future 2 today. However, there is then a plot hole that appears between Back to the Future 1 and Back to the Future 2 in story mode in that Doc obviously is going to spend all this money, sell, uh, burn down the house, move into the garage, build the flux capacitor, make the time machine. It's going to, make, it's going to take him 30 years to build it, but he's going to make this working time machine. If you go back to... Back to the Future 2, in the alternate 1985, after Biff stole the almanac, uh, there's a bit where Marty holds up the paper and it says, Doc Brown committed. 
<coughs> sorry, I've got a really tickly throat today. Uh, so yeah, he says Doc Brown committed. That then means that Doc could not be able to build the time machine because he's been locked up in an asylum. So there's a, a really big plot hole that appears there in that, well, how in this universe is that still technically being able to happen because there's no time machine? If Doc's been committed, the original time machine should have faded out from existence. Because uh, with Biff, when Biff's behind the car, uh, they never show it in the proper film. Uh, it's in the deleted scenes, but Biff goes back to 1955, gives his younger self the almanac, comes back to 1985, and then Doc are getting uh, Doc and Marty are getting Jennifer into the car when she's fainted, and you just see Biff behind the car, and it looks like he's in pain. In the deleted scene, Biff falls to the floor and then disappears because apparently Lorraine shot him at some point and uh, it, it stops him from being in existence, which then should mean that the DeLorean, if that's going back to this timeline where it never got made in the first place, should disappear because it was never there. But that's going to be when I do Back to the Future 2. That could be a while uh, because there's a lot of plot holes in that film but we'll cover that another day. Um, so just going on from the scene where he's just met his mum, when Marty travels to 1955, he travels November 5th, he's having dinner with Lorraine and the family, and they're watching The Honeymooners, and Ralph's dressed up as a man from space. Wasn't actually broadcast until December, 3rd, uh, December the 31st, 1955, so it was about a month and a half after Marty travelled there. And yeah, again, uh, Hypno putting in the chat, there is so many plot holes in this film. However, there's just something about it that almost makes it a perfect film. Um, but yeah, there is, a, there is a lot of plot holes in there. Um, but yeah, uh, Marty's now met his mother. Um, we've sort of met George. Uh, and now it goes to one of the best lines ever from Back to the Future from George McFly. So I, before lockdown, went to see, they've done a Back to the Future musical, which has been written by Bob Gale, who did the film. And I managed to get tickets, and we did it, it was about three three weeks before the country went into lockdown. And anybody that likes musicals, I would say it is quite possibly one of the best musicals ever made. Um, They've changed... Right, they've changed the plot slightly. I'm not going to ruin it for anybody, but the plot has changed ever so slightly, and mainly because it's a show on stage and you can't really do what they did in the film. Um, bits that they did do in the film, by the way, they found a way around them. Amazing. So smart how they've done it. Uh, but went to see it. I've never seen anybody cheer louder than when the DeLorean first appeared because the stage was pitch black. There was one single sign at the back that said Twin Pines Mall, uh, Ollie Dobson, who was playing Marty, walks on and he's like, Doc, are you here, Doc? And then all of a sudden you hear the flux noises from when the car reappears and the car literally came from nowhere and slid into the middle of the stage because it, it was run like an hydraulic arm track and just slid into the middle of the stage and people were on the feet applauding for it because nobody expected it coming 
and he just caught everybody by surprise. It was so good. <coughs> um, cast, they had Roger Bart, who, if anybody's watched um, Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events, he's in a series of that. Uh, but he was playing Doc. Um, everybody, the only one that was a bit let, or let down was the guy playing Biff, mainly because it felt like he was rushing the lines a little bit. So in the film where Biff's like, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? This guy was like, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? He was just like, he seemed to be rushing through his lines a little bit. The guy who plays George McFly may as well have been Crispin Glover. He got the nervousness down. He got the voice down. He got the look down. He was spot on for Crispin Glover. And this scene where... He's like, I'm your density and all that lot. He walks in and it plays the same way. They're in the cafeteria. Uh, if, sorry, they move it from the canteen to the cafeteria. And he's like, I'm George. George McFly. And he goes, I'm I'm your density. I mean, I'm your dentist. I mean, and he's going through everything that starts D-E-N. Um, he's, and eventually he gets to I'm your destiny. The guy was spot on. It is so good. I hope... It does restart up again when lockdown and everything's over. I had tickets to go and see it again in May, I think it was. Um, but unfortunately, they cancelled all the showings and there's not been any talk of when it's coming back yet. Uh, but if it does come to, especially if it comes to America, if you get a chance, the Back to the Future musical, go and see it because you will not be disappointed. It is, it is so smartly written in taking what they had to do from the film converting it to stage and then getting over the obstacles that performed um it is really smart and really good so going back to crispin glover um crispin glover playing george mcfly uh was originally meant to have been in back to the future 2 and had an argument well for, for a long time the rumors were he wanted more money to do back to the future 2 uh, they'd all redone the contracts. Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox had got more money. Christopher Lloyd had got more money. Um, and Crispin Glover wanted more money. Uh, that was the rumours anyway. Uh, and they went, look, no. You want, you're wanting almost as much as Michael. We can't justify paying you that amount. Sorry, but you're out of the film. Uh, got to Back to the Future 2. Obviously, they need George McFly in it. So they got a guy called Jeffrey Wiseman and they put him in a mask at the beginning. It was a latex mask that apparently looked a bit like Crispin Glover. And then just to hide the fact that it wasn't Crispin, uh, when he goes to the future, they put him in the thing that puts him upside down. So it's a bit harder to like figure out the facial features. And uh, Crispin Glover was like, no, that's you're making out that he's me. Uh, took it to court and won. And now there's a there's a term I can't remember what the exact term is, but there's a term in the contract for like rights to your likeness, and that all came from Crispin Glover, essentially being kicked off the film and getting somebody else to come in and play his part. Um, so yeah, Crispin Glover changed everything. He is apparently a really weird guy. Um, when they were running lines for the first film. The lady who plays Lorraine, uh, Leah Thompson, went to his house 
apparently the front room was just painted all black and there was a metal surgical table in the middle of the room and that was it. At that point, if that was me, I'd have opened the door and be like, no, close the door and done one. Uh, but yeah, he is, he is apparently a weird guy, but a few people have said the weirdness is it's a bit accentuated when he's in public. He's not as weird as what he makes out. He just wants you to think that. Um, but I've seen a few interviews with him. He's a little bit strange. But really good actor. I'm kissing my brother. I guess that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, Lorraine, that does not make sense. First off, how do you know what it's like kissing your brother? That's the weird part. Um, This is one of the scenes why Disney w- wouldn't commission the film. Uh, the fact that... Now, this is where the film gets a little bit weird. Uh, Marty and Lorraine are in the car Lorraine takes the top off and obviously she's got the low cut dress so Marty's like shit that's my mum Looks, starts looking away she then pulls the whiskey out starts drinking it takes the whiskey off her she pulls the cigarette out takes the cigarette off her then Lorraine essentially throws herself on top of Marty and starts slipping him some tongue and Marty doesn't like fight back Marty's just like, he like makes a few noises, but he's not like trying to force her away or anything. And yeah, exactly, Hypno. It's like, this is your mum. You don't make out with your mum. Uh, and it's like, as I say, you just watch the scene and like, as I say, she she's sat at one side of the car, he's sat at the other, and she like throws herself on top of him, but he's not trying to fight her away at any point. And then like she pulls back and she says that line where she's like i don't know what it is but it feels like i'm kissing my brother and like marty's still slumped like down in his chair with lipstick on his face and he's not like what are you doing why have you just tried doing this uh and yeah he's basically just made out with his mum. there is a i can't remember who made it there is an animation online um where they've took this scene and animated it and uh, Lorraine starts making out with Marty and Marty just goes along with it (laughs) yeah he should have had the Ace Ventura Ihorn moment and got in the shower and started scrubbing himself with wire wool and bleach and a bit of fire Uh, but yeah this animation that they've done um, it's this scene and Marty ends up like just going along with making out with Lorraine and then it cuts to Marty and Doc in the garage and he's like, uh, so what happened? He's like, well, I, I kind of made out with my mum. He's like, how far did you make out with her? He's like, well, we, we kind of went all the way. We had sex. He's like, Marty, that's your mother. You can't be doing that. Uh, so he's like, you've got to go back in time and stop yourself from doing it. So he goes back in time again to that point. They start making out. He looks through the window. and like, He just looks at both. He's like, threesome? He's like, did you just have a threesome with yourself? yes it's like marty you need to go back again and it just ends up with more and more of them and then it cuts to like 10 years in the future and lorraine's pre- uh, lorraine's had like 10 kids that all look like marty they've all got like the little body warmers and everything on it is so funny um i'll have to try and dig the link out if i can find it but 
yeah, this is one of the scenes why Disney were like, no, we're not touching this, I'm afraid. Uh, it There was a lot of teen sex comedies at the time, so you got things like Weekend at Bernie's, Porky's, uh, all them sort of films, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And they looked at it and went, teen sex side of things, we can deal with that, that's fine. Incest, on the other hand, nah, we ain't going anywhere near. Uh, and... Yeah, it's just a really, really weird scene. Um, and he's, I think it is just for the fact that he doesn't fight back on any of it. That's thats the bit that's the worrying part. This was another one of them, another one of the scenes that I'm not quite comfortable with, because it essentially starts with Biff trying to sexually assault Lorraine. Now, this film, I believe, I don't know if it says the rating on here, this film is a PG, if I remember rightly, and Biff is essentially trying, well, Biff's drunk for starters, you find out more in the second, in Back to the Future 2 when they come back again. Uh, Biff's been drinking for most of the night. So there's a drunk Biff trying to force himself on Lorraine, trying to assault her. Um, and then George comes, saves the day. George then becomes a little bit of a dick because he's hit Biff in the face, all right, he stood up to his bully, fair play to him. But then it cuts to the dance and there's the ginger guy that, when Lorraine and George are dancing, and he's like, Scram McFly, cutting in. And he's dancing, and he walks up to him and just shoves him on his ass. Um, Why didn't he just turn around and be like, no, excuse me, she's here with me. Uh, we're dancing. Fuck off and find somebody else. Uh, but no, he like proper puts the guy on his ass uh, and then sticks his tongue down Lorraine's throat. Um, and then once it gets to the end of the film and this was one of the reasons why Crispin Glover didn't come back for the sequel either George and Lorraine become wealthy because George becomes a writer he puts out his first book uh, the house has become bigger everything looks nicer they've got the brand new truck but the weird bit is is that even though Biff essentially tried raping Lorraine they've still kept him around cleaning the truck it's like really you've just almost been sexually abused by somebody and you're going to keep him round and make him polish your brand new pickup truck really um yeah he just gets really he gets really weird um surely like you report him to the police and you'd never want anything to do with him again he'd get kicked out of school hopefully he'd change states or you'd move somewhere else and you'd never have anything to do with again. But no, he basically runs an auto detailing place. And yeah, we'll just get him down to come and clean the truck, even though he tried assaulting you 30 years ago. 
not really. That's not how things work. Um, but just with the scene itself, um, one of the greatest scenes in movie history. Just with the with the build up of music, in the you've got that un, uh, the underscore that's going just as like George has got his arm behind his back. Biff's up trying to break his arm. And it keeps cutting to George clenching his fist, ready to swing. And it's not until he pushes Lorraine down and hurts Lorraine that he just snaps and he's like, no, you don't do that. Um, and punches him in the face and gets the perfect what, uh, 360 spin. Yeah, Biff would do a 360 spin because he hits him. And then Biff hits with his back against the car and slides down. So yeah, he manages to 360 the guy. And yeah, one shot, one kill. Um, which is not really realistic. Let's not go two ways about it. Uh, George McFly were like, what, 80 pounds soaking wet? And Tom Wilson was pretty jacked. So unless he's got a glass jaw. Mm. But yeah, the just the build-up to that in where the cl- fist clenching and the music starts building up. And then it goes to like, the doo-doo, and he's like, are you okay? With a wobbly voice. Uh, one of the best scenes in uh, movies for me. Until this next scene. All right, this is, uh, this is an oldie, but, uh, well, it's, it's an oldie where I come from. All right, guys, uh, let's miss the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Johnny Be Good. Um, said at the beginning, I think this was the start of me liking rock and roll. Um, it was such a smart choice to put Johnny Be Good in there. And I've read into, because like I say, I, this is probably my favourite film of all time. I've looked into a lot of stuff regarding the film. They messaged Chuck Berry and when we won... Johnny Be Good in the film. Can we sort something out? And Chuck Berry kept saying no, but they'd already wrote it into the script. And it wasn't until the day they was due to shoot and a $50,000 check later that Chuck Berry went, okay, you can use Johnny Be Good. Uh, they almost lost that scene. They, they had no other idea, like no other song that could have fit for what they wanted. They They essentially went, we want Michael J. Fox to invent rock and roll and exactly it no money talks um and i don't know whether that was around the time that chuck berry had got the legal issues uh but if somebody comes to you with a check for fifty thousand dollars that's going straight in the bank be like yeah do what you want but you use whatever song you want um but yeah taking that song and writing it that smart that the guy, which he's just popped up on the screen, actually, uh, Harry Waters Jr., who's right there in the green suit, uh, he was playing uh, Marvin Berry, who's meant to be the cousin of Chuck Berry, who, during the song, phones Chuck Berry and goes, Chuck, you know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this, and holds the phone up for Chuck Berry to hear. Um, However, Chuck Berry doesn't start playing like Eddie Van Halen, <laughs> which is a bit of a shame. Um, But... It was so smart with that music. Uh, the choice of it was brilliant. The way that 
it goes back to the beginning in that all Marty wants to be is a rock star and he just wants that break and they've given him a guitar and gone, right, there's your guitar. You've played Earth Angel. That's the slow song. We've done the crescendo build-up of where we thought you were going to die. Uh, you've come back, which, just quickly speaking of that, I'll show you a book in a minute that I've got. However, one of the props that comes with it is, and again, the light's not great, is a holographic photo from the film where the brother and sister disappear. Um, but yeah, the they've done the crescendo build-up from Earth Angel, and he goes, right, let's do another one. Uh, and he picks Johnny B. Good, um, which... Just, again, another goof in there. The guitar that he plays, uh, it's meant to be 1955. The Gibson guitar that he has wasn't made until 1963. So, a little bit wrong there, but it looked like a nice guitar, and it worked for the scene. Uh, but yeah, Johnny B. Good. I can't think of another film... Yeah, not off the top of my head. Another film where they've got like the musical number, like that is that fits the, the way they've wrote it into the scene fits perfectly um there's stuff like because next episode um i'm going to be doing blues brothers uh there's musical tie-ins to that um but this just works with the writing to fit into the film so well um and yeah that got me into rock and roll uh from that point it was Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard. Uh, people say Elvis is the king of rock and roll. Nah, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and uh, Little Richard. Little Richard definitely uh, started creating rock and roll. Okay, this is another bit where it gets weird as well. So, we've got to... The good guy gets the girl. Uh, George and Lorraine are together. Marty saying bye to his mum and dad. Okay, imagine the scenario. You've gone to... You're... I don't know how old they're ever meant to be. Let's call them 17. They're 17 years old. They've gone to a dance. They've met a kid who has been in the town for a week, roughly. Uh, and... Your now girlfriend, who you saved from being assaulted at the dance, had a crush on the guy, uh, but he says he's leaving, and she's now with you. You've kissed her at the dance, everything's good. Cut to 30, well, let me find out, yeah, it'd probably be 25 years later, and you've started a family with said lady who you got with at the dance. And one day you look at your child and you go, okay, for starters, she's called him Marty. And he looks oddly like that guy who she met 30 years ago. Wouldn't you think that your wife's having an affair? Because she lo he looks exactly the same and she's called him exactly the same. Um, it's just a, a little bit weird. Uh, and... Ed Byrne references it as well. There's a comedian over here called Ed Byrne. Uh, 
he referenced the exact same thing. It's just a bit strange. Um, also, with it getting to the end scene, um, also, by the way, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the podcast, uh, there is a very special song that I'm going to be playing in about maybe five minutes' time. Uh, because I want to try and do a musical number at the end of every episode that I've been trying to learn. Um, so that is coming. Uh, but yeah, the the final scene, um, Marty's gone from the dance. He said bye to his mum and dad. He's gone to the town square. The storm's starting to rage up. Doc's gone, right, here's the plan. Drive over there, put the hook in the car, drive straight down the street, get to 88 miles per hour, lightning will hit the clock tower, go down the wire, hit the flux capacitor, send you back to 1985. Job done. We've solved everything. The cable disconnects, so Doc sorts that. However, here's the major plot hole that is evident to me from... Because I rewatched this again earlier. So, Marty drives to the starting point, And he has a alarm clock on the dashboard that basically says, once this alarm clock goes, you need to start driving. Gets to there. Just about to go. The alarm clock's ready to tick. Engine cuts out. Engine completely stalls for maybe 20 to 30 seconds while the alarm clock's going off that basically says, you need to go now. Uh, finally, he, if I remember rightly, headbutts the steering wheel, the car starts up, he starts driving. Here's my issue. If Marty had got to the starting point and spun the car around, alarm clock had gone, and the car had stayed running, and he'd started driving up to 88 miles per hour, he would have hit the line with the hook about 20 to 30 seconds earlier than he should have done. So either he was going to rip the hook out of the car, he was going to rip the wiring out of the street, but either way, whatever happened, Marty would still have been stuck in 1955 because Doc's calculations was completely wrong. He would have basically hit it a good half a minute before the lightning would have actually striked and nothing would have happened. Um, so what would have happened then? It might have been stuck in 1955 forever, essentially. Next day, they'd have had to go to school and be like, oh yeah, sorry, by the way, I said I was leaving last night. I'm back! And then he'd have ended up probably sleeping with his mother because Lorraine had have probably gone off George and ended up going back onto him again. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a, a really weird situation what would have happened and he's doc that bad of a scientist that all the calculations were completely wrong hey doc we better back up we don't have enough road to get up to 88 roads well we're going we don't need roads That ending is so cool. As a five-year-old child, a car lifting into the air and flying directly at camera. That was like a nerd's wet dream. Um, they obviously went on to make Back to the Future 2 and 3. The original plan was never to have made a sequel. Uh, it was going to be a one-film thing. Um, the film ended. Like If you watch it now, after the car flies into the camera... It pops up saying to be continued and then on the second one to be concluded. That was never in it in the original release. That got added on home releases on VHS and DVD, Blu-ray and all them side of things. Uh, originally, it was just going to be Back to the Future 1. 
released it. It did that well that they went, right, we want it back to the future too. Um, and they agreed on the third one and shot them both back to back. So second and third were both made at the same time and then got released. Um, second one, again, that's high up there on one of my favourite films of all time. The third one, as much as I love it, I'm not as much of a fan of. The third one I always thought was the weakest of the three. Uh, it's still a really enjoyable film, really watchable, but it wasn't a one or two for me. Um, so that is essentially it for running through Back to the Future. Um, as I say, it is one of them films that if it's on telly or if I've got nothing to do and I just want to watch something that I don't really have to concentrate on that I know about, I can just watch this straight off the bat and I know exactly what's going to happen. I can probably recite half of the script and it's just such a good film. Um, I was thinking of maybe doing a review inside of things. It has got plot holes in it. Uh, so if I was giving it a score out of 10, it probably would be a 9. But this is as close to a perfect film as I can think of. Um, for me, anyway. Uh, so, right, I'm just going to run through a couple of the bits that I would recommend if you are a Back to the Future fan. Uh, because there is a book that I got a good few years ago. I can't even remember where I got it from. Uh, and it's called... Let me just be able to get into it. So it's called Back to the Future, The Ultimate Visual History. The book is massive. And it basically runs through everything from Back to the Future 1 to Back to the Future 3 on like what happened during certain weeks, uh, where the ideas came from. There's pictures of storyboards in there. Um, the cool thing is, like the prop of the disappearing family, uh, there's multiple props that come within it. Uh, one of them that comes, you get an envelope that says, do not open until 1985. And then when you open it, you have the letter that Marty wrote to Doc in the canteen that says, Dear Dr. Brown, on the night that I go back in time at 1.30am, you will be shot by terrorists. Please take whatever precautions are necessary to prevent this terrible disaster. Your friend, Marty. It has replicas of a lot of the props, like there's the receipt from Back to the Future 2 for the Almanac. Uh, there's a Biff dollar bill. There's a poster for the Enchantment of the Sea Dance. There's a replica cover of George McFly's book. Uh, and the book itself, I think we're about 15... Well, it says it's 35 quid on the back, but I think it were about £15. Pound, um, because I've got it on the last day of a Comic-Con, if I remember right. And it is, it is so worth a read. It is such a good book. Um, so yeah, I say Back to the Future, The Ultimate Visual History, written by Michael Clustorin and Randall Atamanuik. I think that's pronounced. Um, any Back to the Future fan, definitely get hold of it. Uh, also, in my little collection of Back to the Future things, everybody's got to have the pop vinyls. So we have the pop vinyl of Marty McFly. And then also, going back to 2016... Uh, I got myself a Grey Sport Almanac, which inside is just a blank notebook. However, on the front of it, I had the pleasure of being able to meet Christopher Lloyd. And Christopher Lloyd signed my Grey Sports Almanac, which currently, apart from I've took it out for this, has a place up on the back wall up there 
with signed gig tickets and I think I've got an Alice Cooper dollar bill, uh, plectrums from various different bands. Uh, it's got a signed frame. It's got like a framed place that it lives in up there. Okay, so that was my rundown for Back to the Future 2. So, like I said at the beginning of... Uh, sorry, a couple, it's been a long day today. Uh, a little bit early in the podcast, I did say that I was going to do a musical number to end the podcast. Um, I've been learning this over the last couple of days. Um, so, we're going to give it a go, play a bit of guitar and see what happens. Um, the only bit I do need to do is quickly oops, quickly pull something up. Uh, just give me one second. For anybody that's actually hearing this on the normal podcast, this bit will be cut out just while I find what I'm looking for. Uh, we are looking for... Believe it is. That's the one. Okay, here we go. So I promised a musical number, so we're going to try and give this a shot. Someday 
I'll be the vision, the vision of your happiness. Oh, Earth Angel, Earth Angel, will you be mine, my darling dear? Love you all the time. I'm just a Okay, so I want to thank everybody that has dropped by for this episode. Um, it is the first one. There is a few changes I'm going to make on things. Uh, we hopefully are going to improve. Uh, we're going to be doing it every two weeks. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play you the teaser for the next episode now. Uh, this will be coming uh, two weeks today, so with 23rd of August. So here we go. Tank of gas, half pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit the record button, it's podcast time! Hi everybody, my name is Black Magic, and on Sunday, the 23rd of August, episode 2 of the Black Magic Picture Show will take place. Come and join me on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash the Black Magic Show, where we review 1980s classic The Blues Brothers. And then every two weeks, a brand new episode will take place. To see the schedule, go to Twitter and follow me at The Black Magic Show. So that's Sunday, the 23rd of August, right here on Twitch. We're on a mission from God. And there it is. So in two weeks' time, the episode will be The Blues Brothers. Episodes three and four are panned out already. I know what I'm going to be doing on them. Uh, I've just got to make all the stuff, and I can then put the promos out. So once again, thank you anybody that has stopped in tonight. I'm... I'm eternally grateful, as I say. This is a project I've wanted to do for a long time. I know there is a few things I need to tweak in it. Talking to yourself for... I've been on for an hour and 40 minutes. Talking to yourself with no gameplay or anything is quite difficult to do. Um, but I'm going to get guests on and things like that, try and improve everything, and hopefully take it from there. So thank you for stopping by. My name has been Black Magic. This has been the Black Magic Picture Show. And in the words of Doc from Back to the Future 3, the future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. So make it a good one. Bye.